0: Hey everyone! Welcome to the Fort Worth OB Podcast. I'm your co-host Dr. Brian Wong, and I'm your co-host Dr. Matthew Earl, and we're very excited to be here today. Hello, everybody! I'm very excited to welcome Blair to our podcast, our very first guest. Welcome, Blair. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Thanks, Dr. Earl. I'm excited to be here. This is my first time recording a podcast, so that's exciting. Um, I am a clinical quality coordinator for the Office of the Medical Director. I've been a paramedic for almost nine years now. I've spent five of those years um, here at MedStar, and yeah.
0: Well, really excited to have you here today. We're going to be talking about the airway checklist, and I understand you were a, a big part of designing that and doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting behind that project. So really excited to, to talk to you about that today and get the the good word out to all of the medics about how much of a great tool that you've created for them to use in the field.
1: Thanks. It was definitely a team effort, but um, I am excited to have this tool out in the field for people to use.
0: Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about why we decided that we needed a checklist.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, research and experience has shown that uh, we are in high stress environments all the time. Uh, And our brains typically aren't able to function uh, and remember things, recall things, uh, complex tasks in those situations. And uh, checklists are not only used in the medical field, they're used in several different professions such as aviation, construction, uh, sometimes even in hobbies. things like uh, mountaineering um, or climbing, bungee jumping, parachuting. I don't know if you've ever been skydiving, Dr. Earl. Uh, I have, and I'm glad that they have a whole checklist of things that they go through before we get up in the plane and jump out of it. And so the biggest reason we have these checklists is just that when you're you're found in that situation where you're stressed, it's just something to streamline uh, communication to make sure that all the tasks that need to be done are being completed.
0: Absolutely. And it's so important when you have that mind goes blank moment, right? It like happens. In, in your resuscitation, you get stumped on a call, last call of the shift and you're just dog tired and you just have that mind go blank moment. That's why you want to have a checklist there when you're tired, when you're beat and you have to do something that's high stakes and complicated, it's nice to have that reference there. And the reason I, I think that a checklist is helpful is that you do the same thing every time. So even when it becomes second nature, you have a reference to make sure that today's not the day you forget part two.
1: Yeah, and that's a really good point because we're not always working with the same people too. So a lot of times you might be working with a different partner and then you arrive on scene with a fire crew that you maybe have never worked with. You have different credentialing, you have um, your advance, you have your assists, you have your basics. And so if everyone's on the same page of what needs to get done uh, by utilizing this checklist, then it kind of makes those things run a little
0: more smoothly. Absolutely. And I think it's just getting that reliability across every provider that this is the way we do it every time. We do it the safest way every time, no matter how tired we are, no matter if we're in somebody's living room or in the middle of a busy intersection that just had a terrible MVC. We have the same tools and we operate the same way each time.
1: Exactly. Consistently performing high quality patient care.
0: I 100% agree. I think that checklists are important and Airways are very much amenable to the benefits of a checklist. So let's, let's talk through a basic scenario just to, to kind of examine the ability of a checklist to help. So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna to talk to you about a clinical scenario, and then we're gonna stop and kind of talk about the things that were missed. Even though they're not massive things, they will affect patient care. Perfect, So let's do it. You're on a call, you're called to a patient in respiratory distress And you find a patient in a small back room of a house because no one ever lives anywhere else other than the tiny back room that you can't get to that's full of junk.
1: It does seem that way, yes.
0: Fire is already on scene. You have an all-basic credentialed crew. They're already BVMing the patient. Family's distraught and keeps bursting into the room no matter how much redirection you do. You quickly assess the patient. You decide that she's apneic. She's not breathing without fire's assistance. And she's going to need to be intubated or have a king tube placed. You do a quick vitals assessment. Vitals already meet goals, so you're ready to proceed. Perfect. Family keeps bursting in throughout this entire time, even though you keep prompting them, hey, we're doing our best. I need you to stay out there. It's a very small room. They, they just can't control themselves because it's a very stressful situation, and they weren't ready for this. It's an otherwise healthy patient, extremely unexpected. So you call for a kit dump. Your EMT is working on your kit dump. While the kit's getting set up, you're working on obtaining access. You've got fire doing max BVM and adding OPAs, NPAs, and the, the other fire crew is try, attempting to control the family on scene, but it's just, it's very loud and they're doing their best. Once you get access, you drop your ketamine and you do a final check. And looks like everything's ready to go. So you push your ketamine. How long do we pre for? We don't know, right? This scene is chaotic. It right? is, right, So no yes. one's double checking that we've pre-oxygenated for a long time. Sure. Is your suction ready?
1: We don't know. Do you have I... your
0: bougie out? I'm well, not sure I confirmed maybe. that. Yeah, right. I did
1: ask my EMT to do a kit dump.
0: Yeah, and you know, depending on the day you guys have had, maybe it's out, maybe there wasn't one in the kit, maybe it's still in the kit and it's accessible, but you're not 100% certain, right? And that's gonna vary by your performance too. In the ED, when I'm doing airways, I run a checklist because when I was a resident and I didn't do that, there were times where I reached for the suction and it wasn't where I keep the suction because I didn't set it up because I'm tired, I'm stressed, and that's what happens on scene. So that's what happens to you on this scene. Your suction's not ready. You put your blade in the patient pukes. Bummer. Yeah. So you try to roll them on their side to clear the airway. Someone's trying to get the the portable suction. Eventually, you're able to get it hooked up and you get the suction going. You're able to clear it. but the airway is still kind of challenging because of the patient's anatomy. It's, it's really anterior. You're having a hard time getting the, the 50-50 view. You have some difficulty passing uh, the arytenoids. How long have we been intubating for?
1: Sounds like we've probably been in there for about two minutes
0: at yeah. this point. It's been a while, right? You've had to deal with a lot of difficulties, but no one's necessarily going to be prompting you to come out of the airway, right? Because as part of your, your preemptive uh, setup, did you ask someone to be watching the monitor? Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't, so and that's that's where we try to get to the meat and bones with the checklist. Is someone's watching the monitor? You have that pre-verbalized. If we hit this sat, tell me to get out of the airway.
1: Delegating roles, specific roles.
0: Exactly, so important because as the intubator, whether you're a firefighter, a medic, a doc, an anesthesiologist. You can't watch the monitor and the airway at the same time. No matter how many times you've intubated, no matter how good you are, you can't do that. So having someone to be your second set of eyes is so important. So you look up, you notice that the patient is now hypoxic because we've been working in the airway for a while. You take your blade out, put the max BVM back on and bagging's still difficult despite giving some ketamine and she continues to desaturate. You decide to throw in a quick king but because you have no room in the, in the patient's room, the quick king wasn't pulled out because there's just not enough room to set it out, so it's still in your bag. So you're still bagging, patient drops down to, to 50% SATs, heart rate starts to go down, your, your EMT is able to pull the king out, you throw it in, and thankfully once you get the king in, you're able to bag the patient back up. And this may sound like a ridiculous case. But I have seen cases run like this in the emergency department. I've experienced
1: cases like this before in my, in my patient care. Yeah, it, it's a tough job. We have a lot of things to manage and take care of. And if you don't have specific roles that we talked about earlier being delegated out to people, then things are going to get overlooked in this situation. Uh, this scenario is a really good example.
0: Yeah, because no one did anything wrong here, right? Everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. But the scenario, the stressors, all of these things add up to slightly less than optimal clinical care. Thankfully, they were able to get a king in and to bag this patient back up, but a patient dropping to 50% sat during an intubation attempt, that's a big deal, right? If this patient was a little bit older, or a little less healthy, they may have coded. We've kind of talked a little bit about why we think checklists are important. We, we went through a scenario that gives you a little bit of a background of how it could help. So talk to me a little bit about what's on the checklist.
1: Yeah, so we broke the checklist down into four parts. So you have the plan, prep, perform, and post-intubation section of the checklist. So the plan section, it's pretty self-explanatory. So it's basically just uh, expressing to everyone on scene, communicating to everyone on scene that um, you're going to intubate this patient. If you can't reach your goals for intubation, you're gonna do a KING. If KING doesn't work, you're going to do BVM. If BVM doesn't work, and you're in a can-oxygenate, can-ventilate situation, then you're gonna crank the patient. So it's just making sure that everyone's on the same page of what you're going to be doing. It sounds
0: so simple, that planning part, but it's so important. It is. And I make a point of doing that anytime I intubate in the emergency department, because I, my RT can't read my mind, right? The people who are helping me with this intubation, who are watching the monitor, who are pushing the drugs, who are in the room there to help, They don't know what my plan is until we talk about it.
1: Exactly. So to just
0: simply verbalize, hey, guys, we're going to try to hit our goals with vitals. If we can't get that, we're just going to do a quick king. If we hit vitals, I'm going to go in. We're going to do VL with a bougie. If I can't get a view, I want you, you designated person, I want you to be watching the monitor. If we get hypoxic, if we hit 92%, tell me we're going to come back out right back to max BVM. Right. Right. Everybody knows what their job is.
1: Yeah, I wish that people could read our brains sometimes, right? But that's not real life. And sometimes we have I'm glad to... they can't. Yeah, no, I, I agree. <laughs> this is true. Sometimes it would be nice, um, which is why it's just so important to communicate that, the game plan, to everyone on scene. Yeah. All right, so after the plan portion of the checklist, you go into the prep section, and the prep section has your max BVM. Techniques. It has your kit dump. It has your uh, sedatives, and then making sure that all of your monitoring is applied.
0: This uh, is like the nuts and bolts part of the checklist, right? This yeah. is the technical little details that I forgot to put NPA's in. Uh, oh, the end title's not attached. It's the these are the little gimmies that get people when you're busy and you're overtasked.
1: Yeah, definitely. And these are things that you're not doing just because OMD taught you to do these things, or you feel like they're required. Uh, by OMD. These are all things that have been taught to you because it's what's in the patient's best interest. It's how you're going to ventilate your patient the most effectively. It's how you're going to reach your goal uh, so that you can proceed forward into that intubation.
0: Yeah, exactly. This, This checklist is to make sure that we are doing the things that research has shown to be the best way to intubate patients. It's not just because we want to tell you how to intubate.
1: Exactly. It's setting you up so that you can get it on your first pass, ideally, and then also making sure that it is the right patient. It's a safe patient to intubate, and they're not gonna go into a rest during your intubation attempt. And after our prep, then you have the perform section. The perform section has just a quick reminder of the techniques, because a lot of us can go months without intubating, and maybe you did a cadaver lab in January, you don't come across a patient until March, April, May, where you're actually needing to intubate, so all those technique tips that you learned and got to practice months ago may not be fresh on your brain. So in that section, it just has the, the techniques, and then it gives you a little picture view of uh, that 50-50 view we teach, um, just for a quick reminder before you enter into the airway. And then the final section of the checklist is the post-intubation checklist. Uh, and this is uh, so that you can confirm your placement, which you confirm with in And then you're also going to confirm that your tube is not too deep, so you haven't right main it. So you're going to make sure that you have clear bilateral breast sounds. And then it's also just a quick reminder of if you need post-intubation, uh, sedatives, the dosage of the medications are listed in that as well.
0: Yeah, and that's that's so important because if your tube's not in the right spot, you need to figure that out fast. Yes. And if it is in the right spot and you have a partially awake patient, they're probably not having a good day if they're partially awake. So right. So fixing that quickly is important uh, because even though it might get their blood pressure up, it, that's not good patient service. So who should be leading this checklist?
1: Yeah, so... Uh, anyone on scene should be the one who's leading the checklist. Uh, it doesn't matter what credentialing level, as long as it's clearly delegated out to someone, you are the checklist leader, um, that person can can be the one going through the checklist and making sure that everything's done. So it doesn't matter if you're an EMT or a paramedic or a MedStar employee or a fire department uh, personnel, anyone can be leading it.
0: Absolutely. And the list lead probably shouldn't be changing on the same call. If you're the intubating list lead for that call, that's your job. Right? right? It's not switching to five or six different people because then it just it becomes really confusing. Uh, I think in, in a situation where, where personnel are really strapped, if you only have the one person who's going to be doing the intubating available, you can run the checklist, but understand that it's better if, in, in this case, if you have one paramedic on scene and five basics... It's probably better for a basic to be running the checklist while the advanced or the paramedic is getting access and doing the other things that they're credentialed to do uh, that the other providers on scene aren't able to do. Right, exactly. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the, the actual nuts and bolts of how do we run this checklist. So we talked about who might be leading it, but how do we actually get through the checklist?
1: So when you have a checklist leader, they're gonna read through each item out loud. If the item is ready, for instance, as you're reading through your max effort BBM techniques, if you come across MPAs, OPA, and those are there, then the two people that are ventilating, you'll delegate one of them to be the one responding to the checklist leader, they will say, check. If it's not in place, they will clearly inform you the adjuncts are not in place, and you don't have to wait until the adjuncts are in place. You can keep moving through the checklist and make sure that someone is working on getting the adjuncts placed.
0: Yeah, exactly. So this is a call-and-response type checklist where the guy who's leading it or the gal who's leading it is you know, large and in charge, being really loud. Do we have max BVM in place? Do we have an OPA in place? And the people who are responsible for ventilating the patient need to use very specific language. Say, yes, OPA check or OPA in place. Uh, be really careful with vague language like, mm-hmm, yep, yep, because that you, you might just say that when you hear noises and you're just saying, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. You need to use really specific language. And like you said, when something's not ready, you don't have to get hung up on that one thing. You can keep working in the section, but don't move to the next section. So as an example, if you're in the prep section and you realize that you're missing the end title detector, you can't move to the perform section, but you can verify that other things are out and ready like the king tube and the peep valve is ready, but you can't move to the next section until everything in prep is ready to go.
1: Right, exactly. You have to have very clear uh, communication. We call it closed loop communication. Uh, I'd like to maybe just do a quick example. Is that okay? Let's do it, All right, so let's say if I'm the checklist leader on scene, uh, we've already gone through the plan section. We're now into the prep section. You're at the head of the patient. You're one of the two providers, hopefully on scene, that are available uh, to have hands on at the head, ventilating the patient. So I'm going to start going through the list. Do we have ear, disternal notch?
0: Ear, disternal notch. Check.
1: Two-hand grip with jaw thrust. Check. Do we have a high-flow nasal cannula? Check. Do we have intubate with every breath?
0: Ooh, uh, I don't have the end title in place.
1: No, Entitle. Second provider, can you grab Entitle? All right, moving on in the checklist. Do we have two MPAs? Check. Do we have an OPA? Check. Is our head of bed at 30 degrees?
0: Uh, It is now.
1: Is our PEEP set at 5? It's at 10. Okay. Do we need ketamine for this patient? Are they easy to bag? Easy to bag. All right. Moving on to the kit dump. And so that's kind of an example of how the checklist should run when we're on scene.
0: Exactly. And then at some point when that second provider is able to bring over the end title, the list lead either is keeping it in their head or they're marking it on the actual checklist that I still need to verify the end titles in place before we move forward, and it just makes sure that everything is done and it's it's all closed up. So that's fantastic. I've really enjoyed our discussion about the the checklist so far and kind of brings us to the final point of do i actually need to use this checklist
1: good question
0: and the short answer is you should
1: but what if i have 15 years 20 years of experience in ems
0: then you're really good at airways and that's fantastic but you're still a human being and when you're tired when you're rattled when you're overtasked and overclocked you still forget things. Ah, fair enough. And the reason that I would like medics to use the checklist for every intubation is because it becomes like the back of your own hand. You know the checklist, you get efficient with it, you can run it quickly, and then it doesn't become a barrier, it becomes an asset. It takes a little bit of learning time, right? Anytime you have a new tool, there's a learning curve, and it takes a little bit to get used to it.
1: Learning curve, it feels a little bit uncomfortable at first. It's gonna be clunky,
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely. But that's part of getting better, is recognizing what we can do better and going through those growing pains to get to a point where we do the best that we can on every patient. Uh, there really aren't any situations where the, the checklist is inappropriate, right? Uh, for a crashing airway, it's important, right? And, and this, this thought of, I don't have time to run a checklist because this patient needs an airway 30 seconds ago, I can list on one hand the number of scenarios that that actually is going to occur in, and it is exceedingly rare in the pre-hospital airway setting. There are almost no crash airways anymore.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, Dr. Earl. I feel like my experience in EMS, when you get these critical sick patients, you kind of feel overloaded. Things are a little bit chaotic on scene. You're stressed out and you feel like you have to move really, really quickly. But this checklist is a tool that you can use to just kind of slow everything down, make sure that you're doing everything the right way, and you don't need to feel like you have to get that airway in the next 10 seconds or your patient's gonna die on you.
0: Exactly. Doing an efficient and controlled intubation is much better for your patient than doing a rapid and haphazard intubation. Right. So that old saying of never time to do it right, but always time to do it twice, that's not what we want for intubations. We want first pass successes. Yes. And the other thing is, this should be used in CPR too, right? That's right. The only real thing that changes in this is there's no pre there's no uh, pre intubation goals and Everything sedatives. Else, yeah, and depends on the, on the patient, but usually no sedatives. But other than that, the entire checklist applies to a patient who's in arrest as well.
1: Right. You're still gonna. verbalize your airway plan. You're still going to do max effort BVM techniques. You're still going to get a kit dump ready. You're still going to intubate with the same techniques as you would intubate on a live patient. And then you're still going to confirm the placement afterwards the same way.
0: Exactly. So crashing airways, sick patients, patients who's kind of coasting down and you decide to take the airway or the patient who's in arrest, this airway checklist really should be a tool that you are comfortable with and you use on every airway to make sure that you're doing the best for every patient. And again, we're we're not providing this tool because we have doubts about your ability to intubate. We're providing this tool because we're all human.
1: Exactly, yes. That's the big point right there. That's the point to take home about these airway checklists. this intubation checklists. That's the whole reason why we created it.
0: Yep, it's so that when the uh, When the weaknesses of being human strike, we have a tool so that we can take the best care of our patient no matter the situation. And I think with that, any final thoughts?
1: I don't think so. Thank you for having me, Dr. Earl.
0: Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're always welcome back. And thanks to everybody for tuning into the OMD podcast. Our show notes will be available on the website. And we look forward to chatting with you next time.